to the Meru Media Podcast. Uh, you're joining me, uh, Mukunda Raghavan, and Krishna Parthasarathy today. Uh, we have an amazing guest today, um, something unique that we haven't done in, I think, um, our, our time doing interviews, which is really focusing on regional aspects of what, I guess, Hinduism, Buddhism, the Indic traditions um, uh, play into. And today we have an uh, amazing uh, guest today, uh, Professor um, Archana Venkateshan, who is a professor of uh, religious studies um, at UC Davis. Um, and she has written quite a bit uh, focusing really on uh, the Tamil poetry of the I guess medieval era between the sixth and tenth century, uh, primarily the the prabandhams of the Alvars, um, and she has her most recent book. I think is uh, endless endless songs, I believe, and that is about um, Namalvars or Shadugopans uh, Dirvaimuri. And previously, she has written on Andal extensively, actually um, uh, covering both her um, her Tirupave uh, and Nachiai. Uh, the uh, Um So, uh, Professor Venkatesh, welcome to our program. How are you? I'm very well, thank you very much. It's a wonderful opportunity to uh, speak to both of you and to have the opportunity to share uh, some of this work with a broader audience. So, uh, thank you very much for the invitation. I look forward to a uh, stimulating and fun conversation. Absolutely. You know, it's funny because the, the first first time I really heard about you was on the new new books uh, of Hindu studies program with uh, Raj Balkran. And yeah. you've done a, a couple of interviews with him. And I was, to be honest, like, um, you know, I was blown away about the way you did your free, free interpretation, free verse of the, uh, of, of these, of these amazing poetical works, right? Because quite often what you end up seeing is the pre previous translators would put it in the garb of their tradition, which is mostly the Sri Vaishnava tradition and their commentarial position would, I mean, I'm not saying it added um, a lot of theological and, uh, you know, metaphysical like gravity to it, but yours was very free flowing. And I love that uh, the way that you can just read it without having necessarily the theological background or the traditional background when you approach these texts. So before we get into that, you know, I really want to talk about that. Can you give us your background? Like, how did you get into this? Where did you start from? Where are you from originally? All that. Uh, how long do you have? <laughs> we have, we have all the time podcast. in the world. We have all the time in the world. Uh, well, it's a very, um, both a, a, a somewhat, I think, uh, not unusual story, but also in some ways slightly unusual. Uh, I grew up in, in Chennai, uh, in Mad what was Madras at that time. Um, I did all of my schooling in, in Madras. I grew up as a typical, uh, you know, middle class uh, kid going to an English medium school. Uh, learned uh, Hindi as a second language, um, you know, was pursuing a science uh, degree, you know, like a science a track towards a bachelor's degree, uh, because that is what one did. Uh, although I had no head for, for math and no head <laughs> for physics. Um, I loved chemistry, though. I really loved, um, you know, mixing things, various chemicals and watching um, sort of the alchemy happen. Um, 
But uh, somewhere along the line, so, you know, so I eventually uh, decided that the sciences weren't for me. And I, I actually uh, did a year of uh, university in Chennai hmm. uh, studying English, which was really my passion. Uh, you know, I love from a very, very young age, loved poetry. My uh, my maternal grandfather was a very voracious reader. So, you know, from my earliest memories of him are um, listening to him recite Shakespeare and introducing me to sort of the canonical sort of English great white men works, you know, <laughs> um, Hamlet. And he had, he had like, all of Hamlet sort of memorized. So there were all of these, like always he had a, a perfect apt Shakespearean quote for any um, any sort of situation. Like if you had to give you advice, he had like a like something from Shakespeare to sort of um, give you. So I, I sort of, that was my, so I sort of de developed a very deep love of poetry. And that was something that, um, that I kind of carried with me. And then I ended up coming to the US for my undergraduate education. Hmm. Um, did my um, undergraduate degree in English Lit um, at Berkeley. Uh, and then again, just serendipitously, it was just one of these really strange uh, coincidences that I um, had a roommate uh, who was uh, taking a, a class in, in Tamil literature. And uh, she said, it's a graduate seminar, why don't you come? And I was like, I don't know any Tamil. Like at that point I could barely read Tamil. I knew the letters, Yeah. I couldn't really read. Um, I said, I don't know any Tamil. She said, no, no, don't worry. Uh, it's all in translation, which is a sort of, for me uh, now, when I think back on it, uh, a really transformational moment because mm. my life really has been, my scholarly life, my professional life is really, been uh, so devoted to sort of the practice, the art and craft of translation as a way uh, to invite people into these other worlds and mm. to also know these uh, worlds that I encounter more intimately. So at, at that time I had no clue. So I ended up going to this class uh, which was taught by Professor George Hart. Uh, and he was there uh, in this very uh, sort of dingy basement room. Uh, Krishna probably remember, may, may or may not know this because Dwinell has changed quite a bit, but at that time, the basement where the linguistics department um, uh, was, uh, you know, it was a quite a dingy place. It was this tiny little room and he was sort of reciting these Tamil poems uh, from the Ahana Anur. Mm. Now, first it was astonishing to me, right? This was the, really the first time I was hearing Tamil um, in a co university context, here was this professor kind of reciting these poems, but Amazing. I couldn't understand it, right? I under yeah. recognized the sound as summer, but they were completely unintelligible to me. So I remember I asked him very innocently, what is this? And he said, oh, this is Sangam poetry. Wow. I had never heard this. I said to him, what is Sangam poetry? And he looked like who, what are you? How can you not know this? <laughs> you're Tamilian, how do you not know? <laughs> how do you not know? And you're from India and you don't know, you're from Tamil Nadu and you don't know Sangam poetry. And he wrote Sangam, Aham and Puram on the whiteboard. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then sort of gave me this crash course or gave me like the class a crash course. And I just was like, I had no clue. Like I, my, nothing in my uh, education had prepared me for this. And it was a kind of, I can't even describe what that was like. It was 
uh, mind-blowing. Mm -hmm. um, so I went to the library and I checked out every book on Tamil literature that, that existed in the library and just read. Um, and, um, and then I, found, I decided at that time that I had to learn Tamil so that I could read this in its, um, in its original. Uh, and my first Tamil teacher was um, a, a MA student in the department. Um, who wanted to be, who was an aspiring uh, Tamar uh, actor. Uh, he wanted to be a Tamar actor. <laughs> and, um, and he was a wonderful teacher. He really was a, a, a very patient and, and had a very deep love of Tamar. He used to talk about Tamar as uh, that she was like his wife. And just mm. like any marriage, you had moments when you fought and moments when you, <laughs> when you made up and uh, it was a relationship that you nurtured. So that was really how I kind of got into Tamar. And uh, I just sort of, I think, stumbled really into the world of the Arbars, partly through the reading that I was doing. Uh, A.K. Ramanujan's uh, Hymns for the Drowning was of course uh, uh, such, a, such a, a important work. And so I just was drawn to it. And this is the really funny thing, right? So. I remember, you know, as a child uh, growing up in, you know, Besanagar, Chennai, uh, you know, I would go for the Navratri Golus and mm. uh, in, there was always one Andal uh, there. And I always thought Andal was just like a mythical figure, right? Mm. Like, uh, like Parvati and Lakshmi. And, and so just imagine my shock, and, you know, some, you know, 20 years later when, I mean, not quite 20, but, but 16, 17 years later when I'm, a student in a college that I realized that Andal was actually a historical figure. And that was also the moment where I was kind of like, I want to figure out how did this happen, right? How yeah. did she, how did this poet go become a goddess? Um, and so I'd never read the Tirupave. I had never heard of the Tirupave. Um, and I, let, let alone the Natyar Tirumuri, never heard of the Varanamayram uh, section of the poem. So it was a kind of real uh, discovery for me of, of a kind of ocean of, of, of literature, but also uh, I think a very uh, profound uh, journey of self-discovery as well, right? As a way of kind of being an immigrant in this country, um, sort of finding become a uh, translation and poetry became both a way of making a place and a space for myself in this country that was now my home yeah but also a way to kind of keep connected to uh the country that that i was born in and that i still had a very deep uh connection to and an affinity uh for so um so that's sort of a, a kind of short version of 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 this journey that um that i kind of I feel like was very accidental um, and uh, serendipitous, but uh, one of the, I would say the, the thread that has, I think, uh, animated all of this has really been my love of poetry. I mm. feel for me that has been uh, a kind of touchstone, a kind of uh, way to make sense of myself, a way to make sense of the world, um, and a way to sort of, I think, cultivate uh, a, a, a deep sort of sense of interiority as well, because poetry kind of forces you to do that. Um, and translation, as I said, is this is this way of bridging worlds. Um, and so, uh, so this is where where I am. Wow, that's uh, you know beautiful. Yeah, it's it's amazing because it's all it's something's really pounced out at me because it's like. You, you spent so much of your life in Tamil Nadu. And this is actually not just you. It's just, I, I feel like almost every 
in a million I meet of, you know, between the ages of like 25 and, and like 50, they don't know Tamil. Like they don't, they can't read and write it. Like they, they can't. Because they, they probably went to English medium schools. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they went to English medium schools. And it's, it's, it's just, it's really fascinating to me that there's an entire generation in some ways that have lost touch with, with the, the, the physical language, you know, in, in a way, because I mean, a lot of Indians don't know, like even the Sanskrit script in many ways is based off Tamil Brahmi, right? It, it, it is, it is a very, it, it, it's so foundational to, I guess, all of India. It just, I, I think people miss that when you're just there and then you yeah. come to this country and suddenly you find yourself learning something that you would have never learned to be stayed in India, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. It's it's it is quite a it's quite an extraordinary. Uh, I mean, both as I, that's why I said in some ways it's a very it's not at all an unusual story. I, as I said, I've heard the same story. Like, oh, I didn't know anything about Tamar until I showed up in America yeah. uh, at some university, and I took Tamar. Uh, but at the same time, what is I think uh, for me unusual is is just sort of the the, the very very odd confluence of events that led me down this path. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's 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 a. I mean, again, you know, it's also a a kind of you know. At least when I was growing up, there is a you know you struggle as a child in school. You know where to find and make a place for yourself. English is the language of mobility, uh, upward mobility. Um, as is Hindi. There's a kind of cool factor to, to yeah, speak yeah. in Hindi. Um, there's a kind of cool factor. You're you're progressive. You're modern, but Tamar still has the sense of, oh, Tamar Lepeshina, you're, you're speaking, you're somehow backward. <laughs> backward you're, yeah, you're, backward. you're provincial. Yeah, yeah. So it has these kinds of, uh, so you are, uh, you are loath to sort of pursue Tamar, right? You're mm. loath mm. to kind of, uh, I don't know if that's the case today. Uh, and I don't, I, and I suspect that it's, it may be quite different. But certainly when I was growing up, there was that, uh, that uh, the factor, you know, you want to fit in, uh, you know, learning, um, you know, being able to sort of speak English and, you know, read the latest works and sort of, there's a kind of fluency, a kind of, uh, a kind of uh, social capital that comes from, comes from, from Hindi that Tamil simply doesn't have at least in the in the worlds that I inhabited, and I mm -hmm. and I suspect yeah. it was different, uh, di you know, class and caste have a huge part to play in 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 this as well. In my own experience, which I don't think is is emblematic or um or or sort of is uh, is is the norm, but I think certainly for you know the kind of experience that I had, the kind of schools I went to, mm. um, there was really no space for Tamar. Yeah. Uh, or for an engagement with Tamar in any kind of meaningful way, uh, or indeed any kind of hint of the richness and the depth that exists and the range that exists in Tamar literature. Right. Uh, that was to me uh, astonishing, really. I mean, mm. when I was, uh, you, if, as a student, if you had asked me to name five texts in Tamar, I would have not been able to. <laughs> Uh, Professor Venkatesh, you said something so beautiful. You said translation is is a method of bridging worlds. You know that's I, such a beautiful statement. And poetry about being about interiority. And I was just thinking about myself about the example of you know the late Sri M S Subalakshmi, um, Sh Shrimati M S Subalakshmi, 
I think the, it, it was a very calculated decision for her not to just sing in South Indian dialects, but to also, you know, sing in Bengali, sing Surdas bhajans, sur, sing Tulsidas bhajans, to connect the whole musical world through language. And I just love what you're doing. And I was, I was going to ask, um, is there something like Andal you see in other cultures in terms of bridging worlds? Is there a figure like Andal that you've seen in, in the outside of India, or even maybe perhaps within India itself, like Mira Bhai. There are so many poets, like Sappho, for instance, whose poetry we have just in fag fragments, or uh, St. Teresa of Avila. There are so many wondrous, uh, wonderful female poets, uh, female writers, um, you know, and even, of course, within within India. Uh, you know, Andal, uh, or the, the you know the poet Godey is is a is a remarkable figure. I mean, she really is, and uh, her poetry is quite quite uh, quite startling, and it's very very beautiful. But one of the things I find I found like having lived with with Andal for for so long, um, and I've sort of seen a kind of uh, boom in interest around around mm -hmm. her. There's so many people sort of. Uh, translating her, her works, uh, writing sort of fiction about her, uh, writing poetry in her voice. I read a really wonderful poem, um, sort of imagined uh, uh, by the Singaporean poet um, in English, imagining Andal uh, sort of talking to pigeons. It's a, just a remarkable. Uh -huh. She does a kind uh -huh. of a kind of resurgence of interest, not to mention how many dancers, how many mm -hmm. singers, I mean, every Madhuri, they're singing, you know, uh, but at the same time, so there is this undoubtedly a kind of Andal boom. But I've also discovered, especially when I teach Andal in my classes, that she doesn't really translate very well to a non-South Indian, or perhaps if you push it, non-Indian uh, audience, mm -hmm. right? So in that is not in like for instance, Lala, the the great Kashmiri poet Lal Dev, or even the Virashaiva poet Mahadevi Akka. Yeah, there's a kind of ability uh, for their poetry to transcend the particularity of of their their social location and their historical context in a way that Andal doesn't. Students find it very difficult to connect to her because she's so you know, embedded within a particular very specific South Indian landscape. You kind of have to really know the myths. You have to know <laughs> the sort of landscape that she's in. Uh, you have to kind of know something of the, 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 the sort of the animation of, the, uh, of, of Tamar Bhakti in order to really get into, into, into her. Um, whereas, uh, you know, la, figures like Mahadevi Akka or uh, Lalde, there's a kind of, uh, transcendent quality, right? Mm. That it's, it's in a way that students, especially undergraduate students that I find, respond very easily. They're mm. able to kind of uh, enter into their poetry. Perhaps it's their own uh, sense of hesitation, right? Their own sense of like, oh, I don't know enough about this and I'm afraid to make a mistake. So I don't, you know, I don't want to say X, Y, and Z. Or, or, but there's a kind of like willingness to kind of, enter into the poetry of these other female poets in a way that that I found they struggle with a figure like which sure would. so let's let's take a step back because I think like I want to get into Andal I want to get into this conversation because I think it's very important but 
a lot of people listening will have no sense of what Tamil literature is and where uh -huh. it stems from, right? You know, like, you know, people, most things, when people think Tamil literature, they love to say Tirukuru, right? You know, they're, that, that one, you know, the text, you know, by uh, so long ago, but that text is part of the earliest foundations of, of Tamil literature on the whole, whether it's Tolgapiyam or Tirukuru or Sangam or, you know, Puram literature. Can you kind of explain the origins of Tamil literature and then, and then maybe, and then show a connection? Because I, I know there is, there's a lot of motifs that play both in the Sangam literature and then they connect to in the Alvar literature. Uh, but right. to understand that, you kind of have to understand the basic Tamil. Okay, so uh, so I'll do, I mean, again, this is like grossly simplified. Sure, and, sure. You know, I'm not kind of, so one of the obviously very interesting things about Tamar uh, literature is that it is one of the oldest uh, continuous uh, literary languages. So uh, unlike say Sanskrit, which is not, uh, I mean, people continue to write and compose in Sanskrit, um, but it doesn't quite have the same vibrancy. It's not a living language in the same sense that Tamar is. Okay. Uh, so uh, so Tamar has, has, ha has a continuous literary um, history, at least going back to the first century of the Common Era, which is when we see the first um, extant uh, Tamil uh, poetry, which we now refer to as the Sangam corpus, uh, which broadly um, get, is categorized into uh, the Aham poetry, um, which is the poetry of the interior, this is love poetry, and the poetry of Puram, which is the Puram, which is the external, the poetry of the of, of exteriority. So it concerns everything that is public, like kings and ethics and law and war and all of this. So they are not opposites, but complements, and they, um, they sort of are interpenetrating of each other. Uh, one of the distinguishing features of Aham poetry is that it uh, always features characters who are, who are archetypes, so there are no named characters. And so there's the sense that uh, they, there's a kind of universalizing sort of uh, hero and heroine whose mm. love affair you are sort of following. Yet at the same time, you are also sort of distanced from that experience because they are archetypes. You're always understanding that you are reading something that is placed within a frame that is far away from you. Uh, Puram, on the other hand, always has a named characters or often will have named characters, a named poet. The poet will place themselves within the poem. The king may be named. So that frame, uh, that, uh, that frame is sort of broken, right? Mm. So uh, there is obviously, you don't have, uh, you know, our tendency is often to kind of just draw lin a kind of linear X, Y, Z. Mm -hmm. uh, but that is not how uh, history functions. That's not how literature develops. So it's not that we go from Sangam directly to the to the Bhakti um, yeah. tradition. There's all kinds of other things happening, but uh, Bhakti sort of poetry or this this uh, uh, explosion of this particular kind of movement, this particular sort of uh, relationship to God, um, this particular attitude, this ideology, sort of. Uh, uses poetry very effectively, right? And that makes sense because poetry is such a powerful and has been in the Tamil-speaking South, a very uh, powerful medium. Mm -hmm. So of course, you, it makes sense that this new sort of ideology uses poetry uh, to sort of make its case. Um, but what it also does is it in that process creates a new sort of literary genre, what we today refer to as bhakti poetry. They are not talking about it in that sense, <laughs> but it is a sort of new bhakti it's new genre that develops that merges certain elements of Aham and Puram together. So uh, for instance, the poet um, taking from the Puram elements, it 
places the poet within the within the poem so that uh, that barrier is sort of becomes very permeable very porous uh, the frames uh, that that are so important um, in the earlier literary traditions uh, become much more unstable. Uh, you know, the distance between the poet and the audience, between the poet and the speaker of the poem, uh, also is unstable. Uh, and uh, and and also, and then you kind of get get these. Um, uh, you know, this, these notions of the sort of uh, the thinking of particular sacred spaces and sacred places, um, sort of the uh, praising of God in terms of a, as a hero. Um, so very often in Puram poems, a king will be praised by talking of us giving this genealogy of all of his great deeds. And that gets adapted into the bhakti form where the great deeds are all of these you know, like in the case of Shiva, his eight great acts, or in the case of Vishnu, his avatars, and so on and so forth. So there's this very sort of um, uh, very radical, very innovative reimagining of and and a sort of re and a kind of appropriation and a kind of retooling of of this past to create this very different, a uh, new uh, literary genre that is um, that definitely is uh, has a kind of uh, oral quality to it. It's it's uh, uh, it, it's meant to be kind of uh, meant to be sung. It's meant to be performed. Uh, performance is often very key to um, to these poems. They often refer within the poems themselves about performance, singing, dancing. Is is, is often a, there's a very famous, um, very beautiful uh, Namarvar verse from the second. Uh, Hundred Adi Adi Ahamkarind. It's a, it's spoken in the voice of the female uh, voice where she speak. The woman is um, saying, uh, the, the mother is saying, oh look, she look at her. She's just singing. Uh, her aham, her interior is just melting away as she dances, uh, and she party party. She just she just sings and she calls out Narasinga, and she, in this way she just melts away. She just dissolves. Uh, this uh, seeking uh, Narasinga. So even in this poem, you see how important um, are the, the performance, singing and dancing are. So in Bhakti poetry, you see all of these, you know, you sort of see the emergence of these large cycles, like, mm -hmm. you know, like in the Kravai you have uh, a very complex uh, structure where you have a 10, which is set within a hundred, which is set within the thousand, or even in um, the Natchiyar Tirumuri, which has 14 sections uh, in distinct. Um, these are all sort of innovations that emerge. Now, of course, then you have, you know, you have, you know, it's not, you have this emerging and then you have other kinds of literary genres that emerge in, in the post, uh, post Bhakti period. Um, and that continue on, but the stamp of bhakti and the kinds of innovations that that we see are are, are pretty uh, pretty uh, radical and quite um, quite uh, astonishing. Uh, and we is lucky. And we, I mean, one of the sad things is we don't know like how many poets were there, like how many sure. poets did we lose, uh, how many poets whose poems did not make it. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, so we have probably a, a small fragment of what was actually composed. Mm. Um, you know, so that is also one of the one of the uh, tragedies, or perhaps one of the uh, one of the ways in which we uh, we think about uh, of the way in which literature is sort of conceived. You know, there's always at the center of these 
of these poems and of the of these traditions a sense of loss right that right. even even the divya prabandham is lost multiple times and has to be reconstructed uh, not to mention the 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 devaram which is lost and only partially retrieved so the heart of these the 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 the, the traditions themselves reflect on the, the that sense that what you have is very fragile um you know that something it can just go like that right and mm. it is up to us about uh, and how do you then preserve it how does poetry how does poetry survive um uh, you know, who who is a caretaker of it it gets and, formalized right into like something like uh you know margarita somewhere everyone sings it and, and it, yeah. it, it lives on through to some sort of ritualization in some sense yeah. right yes yes i mean that comes much later yeah but yes, that those that those are some of the ways in which uh you do see sort of tr- seek to preserve a, a living tradition you, you, know? Do you, know, do you know how it gets you know how it lives it lives because people love it so much if you love this stuff so much, you don't wait for an institution. You just do it in your daily ritual at home. Like, and then through the individual family, that's it's just true love. If you truly love this stuff, you don't wait for an institution. You're just going to do it at home. You know? Well, um, I mean, in some ways that is true. Uh, if you love it, you you preserve it. But, but you know, there is a, you know, there's a, you know, there's a sort of, uh, you know, we as a tradition, you know, like the story is full of, like, like our history is full of uh, what do, what gets preserved, mm. right? What is important? Only those things that are pres- that are important get preserved, that get remembered. So it's not just about love; it's about who loves it and who thinks it's important enough to preserve it. Mm. For instance, the, there's all of the stories of 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 Uve Saminadeir and how he kind of was responsible for kind of reinventing and rediscovering Sangam literature, which really did not exist. I mean, it existed within communities of like Jains and certain other mm-hmm. kinds of communities who were, you know, uh, Adinams and so forth, where they were kind of remembering and re- uh, and preserving like texts like the Silapatigaram and the Jivika Santamani. But Uwe Saminadeir, who had a very traditional education, uh, Tamar education, uh, you know, learned all of the canonical like Tirumurais and Tiruvasakams and all of these kinds of texts, did not encounter the Jivika mm. Santamani. He did not encounter the Silapatigaram. He did not here the Purananura, Hananura, right? Yeah. So he had to go and recover these texts. But there were communities that had re- remembered them, that were preserving them, that there were manuscripts. So it's a question of power. It's a question of who has access, who mm. deems them important. Mm. Uh, so the yes, love history. is important. Yeah. The yeah, love is important, but yeah. love is not enough. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. it ha- it matters who is doing the preserving? Yeah, like you said, aham and puram, right? There needs to be some more puram, like some public responsibility with that. Like we can be yes. doing all our own yes. aham inside, but there's yes. a public mandate, loka samgraha, you know, this type of idea. Yeah, I mean, you have to have that. And it's also a question, I mean, you know, the, the, there's a double-edged sword, right? So when you have it, you know, you when you have texts like, say, the Divya Prabandham hmm. that get preserved, and luckily for us, they get preserved, and at least we have what we have. Yeah. The, the text is almost certainly incomplete um, because we know, for instance, we have texts that have 87 verses or like uh, the Periyatirumuri is 1084 verses and it's like just stops in the middle and like what happened, you know? So you know that there must have been more, but this is all we have. Um, or even the Nachyatirumuri itself uh, is almost, at least in my opinion, almost certainly an incomplete work. 
but what happens when you know you do get it preserved you also it also means that acts it, it means now the access is cut off right so that means there's only certain people who have access to it until the 20th century um until print culture allowed you to start printing these texts and mm -hmm. people could buy them and read them there's very small people like me who woman would not have had access to reading the Thiruvaimuri on my own mm. um uh, so or the reading the commentaries on my own uh, even very recently I was you know when I was there I was told you know you can't read them that you're a woman you cannot recite the Thiruvaimuri you're a woman yeah um, so, sorry, you know, to uh, sorry to interrupt you professor Venkatesh but I've even dealt with close family members of mine who are uh, who are female, and they say the same thing. These were mostly they say the scriptures were texts written by men for men, and and they just ignore them all. And that's why I, Andal is so awesome for me, Mirabai and all that. So, but yeah, I, maybe you've dealt with this kind of attitude too. And sorry to interrupt you, but just to no, no, that's true. So I'm saying that yes, you can have public, but you know the moment you kind of bring that it also becomes institutionalized that means it's controlled you know you're controlling who has access to it who's reading it who's uh who's who can um encounter it who can interpret it mm -hmm. uh and so uh you know that means that a whole lot of people are suddenly no longer able to mm -hmm. uh to access it and i think you know one of the things that i often think about is this very i don't know if you know the story of the div the, the, the Divya Prabhupada is very interesting, like number of, or the, or the origin of the Sri Vaishnava tradition is something I find fa quite fascinating. There's a number of origin stories, mm -hmm. right? So you have the origin story of the first Mudalalva, yeah. you know, in Tirukovilur, they, they have that encounter, which is sort of the, sort of a kind of origin moment for the, the Sri Vaishnava tradition. But then you have the other moment, which is of, uh, of, you know, the, um, of Nath Muni uh, encountering the wandering singers who are singing the uh, Thiruvaimuri. And uh, they, he, they only uh, sing uh, 10 verses. And at the end, you know, the, uh, every Falashruti of every 10 verses of the Thiruvaimuri will say that this is a 10 verses out of a thousand. So Nath Muni hears this and says, wow, these are such incredible verses. So where are the other 990 verses? And there's, the singer says, oh, we don't know. We only know this much. And so Nathamuni says, oh, okay. And, and he goes on like a, a little detective, like, uh, and, you know, finds various people who give, you know, tell him, go here, go there. And then finally finds uh, someone who's a student of Madhura Kavi who says, listen, listen, recite this composition of Madhura Kavi, which is the Kandin Shiratamba, and recite it X number of times. And then you will, you will get Namarvar and he'll. So he does this, and then Namarvar shows up and uh, says, um, you know, uh, reveals the Thiruvaimuri to him. And then he's so pleased with him. He says, okay, you didn't even know that there was this 3,000 other verses. I'm going to reveal the 3,000 other verses. <laughs> so this is sort of this, but there's, of course, the first revelation. Uh, and then after this, Nadamuni says, oh, this cannot get lost. So I'm going to institutionalize it. And this is supposed to be one of the origins of the Arayar Sevai. So he teaches um, the recitation of the Thiruvaimuri um, and the Divya Prabandham to his two uh, nephews, uh, Melakhat Tarvar and Kirhat Tarvar, and sort of it becomes institutionalized in the temple in Sri Rangam. So the story is in some ways embedding this transformation of poetry that's in the streets being sung by mm. people who are itinerant musicians, uh -huh. probably not Brahmins, being taken by a Brahmin man and institutionalized, controlled, and placed within a temple context. And once that happens, then who has access to the text is immediately also limited. 
Now, this is in contrast to what happens in the origin of the Trivimuri itself, where, um, you know, uh, according to the uh, Malvars, like the, the hagiography, uh, Madhurakavi follows the light, for, you know, yeah. to uh, and uh, this boy who has been sitting under this tree for 16 long years, silent, just sort of breaks into song uh, when he encounters Madhurakavi. There's a kind of exchange that happens and um, and just pours out the Trivimuri. So this is like an exactly opposite, right? And of course the caste um, relationship is also reversed uh, and the age relationship because Madhurakavi yeah. is the Brahmin and um, Namalvar is, is not, uh, he's yeah. a Vailala um, or supposedly a Vailala. We don't know his caste identity because he doesn't mention it in the poems. He only tells us we only know that he uses uh, the title Maran, which we know was associated with Pandya kings. So he had yeah. some kind of a relationship with the Pandya kings, um, but we don't know what his, his caste identity is. He never mentions it. So but we know, but he's also much younger than, mm -hmm. uh, in the story at least, much younger than, than uh, Madhrakavi. So there's a kind of inversion in the story, uh, but then you have this kind of, that inversion is kind of, reinverted in the recovery narrative so that you know you get this institutionalizing of the tradition that continues then for another you know through commentaries and so forth for another 800 900 years until the 20th century when things really begin to change when you know we have print and print changes everything because now right. anybody can can buy a book mm. and read it and YouTube changes it even more. Too. <laughs> yes, YouTube changes it even more. Yeah. YouTube will have Andal resurgence. <laughs> it's going. It's it went from written word back to spoken word again. Aha! <laughs> hey, full cycle. Exactly. We've done it. Yeah, That's right. Exactly. No, but you know, it, it is. It's 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 very interesting how these. I mean, we have so many different versions of these stories, right? And, and the yeah. way we we talk about their origins and then we're resurgence and losing them and gaining them it's just like this cycle of of us grappling with wanting to maintain something that you know that if it remains on its own will probably just disappear at some level and then you have to control it like you're saying but the moment you control it you control who has access to it you have control have but then there's there's so many different traditions, even within the Sri Vaishnava uh, tradition, whether you're, you're Thengale or Vardagale, it changes how you view who can chant it. Like, you know, the Thengales are much more open to women chanting it and having, I mean, Vardagales are, but the Thengales are much more, tend to be much more like egalitarian in, in, in some of their views for Pileloka and stuff like that. Like they're, they're, they're separate commentary. So you have so much diversity there, but it, it is, it, it's complex. It is very complex. It is. It is very complex. So, so getting back to the your 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 kind of work. So, can we talk about first who are the Alvars? I mean, we kind of went through them, but who <laughs> are they, and what do they represent to 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 the history of this literature? Okay, so the Alvars we know probably lived between the sixth and the ninth century, and the word Alvar means uh, those who are immersed or those who are uh, drowning. Uh, mm -hmm. to sort of evocative of this very immersive ex experience of God. Right. Uh, it probably uh, changed. There's a theory uh, that a few Tamil scholars have posited that it actually initially meant Arvar, uh, the retroflex L, meaning those who rule. And mm -hmm. that somehow mm -hmm. that changed into Arvar, those who are immersed. 
Um, if they are called the Arvar, that means those who rule, they would parallel the title that you get for the, Na the Nyanmar, who are yeah. the leaders. Uh, and there's a theory that that's why uh, Andar alone uh, retains that she who rules um, mm. in, in her title. So there's a theory that that might be one of the reasons oh. um, that, you know, that it probably was Arvar, those who rule that became Arva, those who are immersed. Uh, so they are today, uh, we have them, they're 12 poets and they probably lived between the sixth and the ninth century, uh, primarily in the south, south um, in the southern part of the subcontinent in what today we know as um, uh, Tamil Nadu, primarily Tamil Nadu. Uh, they are, uh, we don't know very much historically about them. In fact, about the, we, we, where we, we know the names of very few of them, like mm. Kulashekaran, Tirumangai, um, Chattakopal, Godai, yeah. Vishnuchitam. Some of them we have their names. Some of them we just have these like Poihei, Pe, Budam, Trupanarvar, uh, you know, they're Trumarshe Arvar, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of, they're Poihei, Budam, just abstract sort of disembodied names. So, so we don't know. Uh, and they don't give us in their poems anything historical about themselves. So, um, so the hagiography, we get the hagiographies uh, that come much later. So we don't know whether Oikepe and Budam were three poets. Were they yeah. just the same poet who wrote three poems? Uh, we don't, so there's a lot of sort of unknown. So that, you know, our job, the, the tradition regards them as 12 poets. Yeah. Um, but uh, we don't know that the his scholarship we don't we cannot say right is uh, the first three Arvars were their first three or is it just one poet writing three different poems? Um, uh, you know, so there's there's a and so there are like for instance Tirumangai Arvars uh, Madal poems for instance don't have a signature so were they composed by Tirumangai Arvar they attribute attributed to him. Uh, or were they composed by a poet? We do not know, right? So there are all kinds of questions about, about these poets. And indeed, there's a lot of questions about their dating as well. Sure. Um, so Tirumangai Alvar is sometimes dated to uh, the eighth century because of a, a, a verse in the, uh, in the Periya Tirumuri where he praises um, the, the temple site in Kanchipuram, the Vaikuntha Paramal temple, which he refers to as the Parameshwar Vinnagaram. In this uh, section, he names the Pallava king who created that, who built that temple by name. And so there's this scholarship is sort of, you know, scholars have said, ah, he must have known uh, uh, this, this Pallava king and therefore he uh, is dated to his period. Mm. But, you know, but at the same time, there are other pieces of evidence within the poetry of Tirumangi Arbar, which would uh, demand that we place him much later because, um, the early Arvar poets, for instance, are not as concerned with sacred places and mapping of sacred places in the mm. same way that you see in the later tradition. So Tirumangi Arvar is obsessed and very systematic in the Periyatirumuri about mapping places. He sings of, he's of all the Arvars, he's the one who sings the most about pilgrimage sites. So that, for instance, is a, is, is a, is a clue that perhaps he's, he's a later uh, than, than the earlier Arvars. So to go back to the original question uh, is that, so the Arvars are these 12 poets uh, who are historical figures uh, or perhaps historical figures who uh, uh, composed poems in this new genre of bhakti poetry in praise of Vishnu. 
they compose in a number of different registers. So there are poems that are purely sort of philosophical and very esoteric. Uh, there are poems that are composed in the voice of the woman, uh, like mm. male poets adopting the female voice. Uh, there are poems uh, that are like, as I said, the Trimangyar are very systematic uh, uh, description and praise of uh, pilgrimage sites. Um, uh, praises of, of uh, you know, of particular avatars, and of course, quite unusual and innovative kind of uh, uh, decisions. For instance, the wonderful uh, poet uh, Kulashekar Arivar, who composed the Perumal Tirumuri, has two very unusual decades in the Perumal Tirumuri, one in which um, uh, he is a lament uh, of Devaki, who is imagining what it would be like to have raised Krishna as her child. So she imagines all the things that Yashoda would be doing to Krishna, but ends by saying, but I don't have this opportunity. It's a, just a heartbreaking and such a beautiful um, sort of uh, description of maternal love and loss. Similarly, in that same Permartha Marie, uh, just a couple of decades later, he has a very, uh, 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 an, an unusual lament of Dasharatha, just as Rama is leaving for the forest. So these kinds of innovations that you see, this kind of reimagining um, is also very typical of the Arvar. So there's a kind of range, emotional range, a kind of imaginative range um, as well uh, in how they are uh, kind of um, calibrating, describing, um, and exploring their, their relationship with this deity who is um, mercurial, who is transcendent, who is unknowable, but yet is intimate, hmm. um, is your friend, is your lover, uh, hmm. who is this Paranjyoti, but is at the same time uh, this little child. So it's a kind of, uh, and so it's, a, and one of the, I think one of the things that for me has been so uh, inspiring really, and for me as a translator and somebody who loves poetry is just the remarkable quality of the poetry of the Divya Prabandha. It's, mm. um, I mean, the range of it. I mean, it's, uh, it's just extraordinary. It's just really, really extraordinary uh, to me that, uh, you know, you read, uh, you, I, sometimes I read uh, like Poiga Arvar and I say, Namadri Nobody write like this. And then you read Tirumangi Arvar and you think, what karpane, what imagination. Um, so I have so a there... question as to this, uh, uh, Professor. So, I mean, in, in many ways, when I also read, you, you get this feeling of, it's, it almost feels spontaneous, as if like they're just, it's just coming out of them in that moment. But, but also, it does feel very, parts of it seem very, I, I hate the word manufactured, but like thought through, right? Like, yes. like, like they like you know like just just that thought process of being able to connect all the the words for him her it just putting that together it seems so I don't know I, I don't know how I mean like 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 they sat down to I don't I, I don't know if, if I'm able to convey what I'm trying yeah, to say I understand is, what you mean so you know my very favorite uh, uh, poet, uh, John Keats, had this wonderful, in a letter he says, poetry should come like leaves on a tree or should not come at all. Uh -huh. um, did, he do, he oh, 
Odon agrees on. Is that Odon? <laughs> yes, Odon agrees on. Uh, so, but what he means is that poetry should. It's not that he means that poetry should just come spontaneously. That poetry should come like you know. All of us know that a tree is working very hard to put those leaves out in the spring. <laughs> it does, yeah. It's not just a magic thing, but it appears like it's magic. So think about uh, a ballet dancer who soars through the through the air. And it looks utterly effortless. Sure. And part of the illusion is that it looks eff effortless, except the ballet dancer knows the uh -huh. effort that uh -huh. it took to for her to fly or him to fly, the muscles that it took, the training that it took. So think about these poems in much the same way hmm. that they give you the illusion that they are spontaneous. They wow. give you the illusion that they just emerge like that, but. Beautiful. Behind it, there is, it's like a duck, you know, moving along very smoothly on the top, but paddling furiously uh -huh. below. Uh, it's like that because there is no question that the Thiruvaimari, 1102 verses in Andadi, with all of this very careful, very complex homonyms, wordplay, there's no way that somebody composed 1102 verses without thought. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? And there are also 1102 verses that have a structure. There are each 11 verses are about a particular theme. You know, and that the, so there is a kind of structure that the text has that, yes, we have given the impression that these are spontaneous. And of course, the tradition itself encourages us to think that way, right? The story says that Namalvar just like opens his mouth and Trivaimari just comes out. Mm. But, uh, but anybody who has written poetry, even yeah. bad poetry, <laughs> uh, knows that it takes effort, right? A rapper, you know, I'm always astonished when I hear spoken word poets or rappers. Yeah, amazing, yeah. Amazing. Like, how do their words just amazing. come out like, amazing, like amazing. that? But it doesn't mean that there hasn't been practice, that there hasn't been effort, that they I haven't know. been thinking about it, right? So the illusion uh -huh. is of ease. I love it. The illusion of spontaneity. I so, love it. It's I mean, a beautiful quotation. Hashtag illusion of spontaneity. But, it, but it's also, I mean, I guess it plays on the word of calling Krishna Mayan also. It's the illusion. It's the, the creative power, the 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 nature of, of Brahman in, in that context where, I mean, but, but also, I mean, the poetry, it, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right that there was a lot of work going to it, but there's like this bhava, this, this rasa that just kind of, you know, this uh, just permeates it where it, it does feel like they're, in that beautiful state or despondent <clears throat> state or whatever state that they're writing in, they're 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 in that state because it, it it just it feels again, again maybe I, again yes again you know I think that's what great poetry does right yeah. it the you know any great poet I don't mean just Ivar you take Robert Haas uh, one of the great American poets or Gary Snyder a great American uh, poet or John Keats or you take any great poet the ability to capture what you feel in a particular moment and put it into words and make you the reader feel that you are experiencing what they experienced in that moment. That anubhava, is, right? Yeah, Anubhava, that, right? This yes, that is that idea of Anubhava that is so crucial as an interpretive sort of technique for, for the Sri Vaishnavas. That again, you know, that's what great poetry does, right? Yeah. It is, that is not to say that the feeling is not real. Yeah. That the uh, the experience is not real. 
but poetry gives you is a way into it's a window into this right in some ways poetry is itself a process of translation mm. because you are translating this expansive experience that you've just had whatever it may be whether it's sing hearing the song of the nightingale or whether it's watching the daffodils on the on the valley or you're hearing um uh you know uh some kind of uh you know you're having some kind of mystical experience like uh like namarvar the ability to hold on to that feeling and somehow capture it because one of the things about poetry is also it's a medium of economy mm. right what it's, do you mean by that can you explain it means that it's 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 brief right you say you have to say a lot with very few words yeah it's brief mm. Yeah. Hey, hey, Dr. Professor Professor Venkatesh, I got to ask you. I know you're a professor, one who professors, and you give lectures in the university environment to undergrads and graduate students. Do you ever feel that to express your love for poetry, you yourself need to write poetry <laughs> rather uh, than giving these lectures? Like you know, I'm saying, like maybe you need to use the poetry to express your love for poetry. Does that uh, sound? That's like why it? I'm a translator. <laughs> <laughs> Because I'm a failed poet. Oh, <laughs> no, nothing like that. I'm feeling your love right now. Nothing like that. I'm so, getting, uh, I'm okay, getting I, your appreciation of the art. And it's going to make me dive into these poets even more. So you're doing okay. a good job, just so you know. You know, so, uh, you know, I, I've always wanted to, I've always aspired. Or no, I, I don't say I want to say always, because that's now a dead dream. No, but, no, you're still but, young. <laughs> but, uh, you know, as, you know, as an undergrad, as like, you know, as a lover of poetry, I, I did want to be a poet and I, um. I write poetry, very bad poetry. Um, <laughs> but, uh, wow. but, you know, translation is a way in, right? It is a yeah. way, you're like a ventriloquist. Uh -huh. uh, you're uh -huh. not right, you're not using your own, you're sort of using the poetry of another person to make your own poems. Right. Well, so, I, I will say this, uh, a professor, like reading your verse poetry, your free verse poetry is you coming out in that poetry. I think it, it, it's like you're merging with the, yeah. the author of that totally, poetry totally. to convey that poetry into the poetry that we can read. Right. Yeah, bridging it, it, bridging. It, 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 I mean, it, it, bridging in some sense, because I've read, you know, other translations of the Ramore or, or whatever, and they're very laden with a lot of of of, uh, of difficult reading where it doesn't feel like poetry anymore it feels much more like you're writing the old testament bible like <laughs> ye, oh ye or this or you know it's not very um free-flowing and, and i appreciate yeah. that about your translations I, I think is well thank you i mean for me the poetry is uh, has always been the the at the forefront it's always been very important to me as a translator yeah the poetry to shine through this is not to mitigate or to lessen the the the, the theology and the philosophical sure. and sort of the the sampradayic sort of uh, context of these poems but the reason that the Ravai or a text like the Ravai survives is because it's great poetry yeah right uh, and so for me it's important that that be preserved that poetic quality be preserved and one of the remarkable things about Namarvar as a poet um, is that he's a very simple poet. And by that, I mean that his language is quite simple. Uh, unlike say a poet like Kamban, who is quite Baroque, you know, it's very ornamented, the language. Mm. Uh, uh, Namarbar is a very economical poet. He says a lot with very few words. 
which means that there's a lot of ambiguity in his in how he uses there's a lot of sort of grammatical ambiguity sometimes you don't know what the sub precisely what the subject and the object are or what the relationship is or who the subject is or who's doing what to what right is it and that's deliberate and you as a translator uh, and i've always say this um translation is not explanation your job as a translator is to not explain the poem mm. right you are you have to let the ambiguities inherent in the poem to exist you know so if if the poem is verses unclear or deliberately unclear then you have to retain that uh-huh. so one of the things i tried very hard to do in in this translation was to strive for that economy that's why i say that poetry is a medium of economy right you uh it's not like prose where you can have all kinds of things uh that explain um mm. poetry require you you just have to say so little you have to say so much in so few words mm. right you mm. have to you you so that means you break the rules of grammar a lot of the time yeah um you you do kinds of funny little things you reverse the order of, of things so when you and you rely on you know images and metaphors to do a lot of your work for you that requires the reader therefore also to do a lot of work mm. so you as a for me as a translator i always for me my aspiration is always to make the reader work hard right so the trivimuri is not an easy text for somebody who knows tamil this is why you have so many commentaries on the trivimuri they're still writing commentaries on the trivimuri trying to explain what the trivimuri is people as great as uh, periyavachan pillai and um, uh, you know and pillan they were writing commentaries to explicate the the trivimuri because it was a difficult text it and it is an important text mm-hmm. so there and they too have doubts so why do you assume that and they have worked hard to understand the text so why do we have to assume that if we're translating the text into english we have to understand everything right away yeah yeah no that makes so, sense so i guess my follow up to this question is so i just want the topic of poetry particularly and we'll go back to all bars in a minute but i think this is kind of interesting to me you know sanskrit poetry the kavya literature is very bounded right by the language of sanskritam and the way that you have to do poetry so yeah i mean much after kalidasa you don't find that much greatness in the type of poetry that you used to see between the time of the gupta region of the gupta period but was tamil poetry in similar ways bound by uh, grammatical considerations or was it much more free of course it's bound by gr- grammatical considerations of course the rules of meter and uh form, and rhythm yeah. and rhyme all of these are are at play uh, huh. but what is that you that a great poet makes those constraints work for them right mm-hmm. and like the the verse that you were you were citing nam avan even uvan right that's just a recitation of paradigms that's yeah. just the tamar paradigms but he does it in a way that is so uh, it just the rhythm of it is itself again remember here there there's no there's no markers in that naam oh. there's no markers there's nothing it's just a recitation ai nindra avare that's the only thing you get at the end to mark uh, 
mark the uh, what is actually happening, the sort of action of the poem. Or even in the very famous uh, second decade, you know, Vidamin Mutravam Vidaselum Muyar. It's just a play on the word Vida to let go. language right the wealth of meaning that a word like vida has now, now uh, did this require that these alvars were literate or was it or, or did not require literacy but oral literacy i mean if you, if you understand what i'm saying there um yes absolutely um i, I don't know that's a difficult question to answer because the idea of writing right yeah um, they were let me put it this way they were at least a figure like Namarwar or mm -hmm. Thurmangai, Andar, definitely very, very erudite, very well educated, uh, clearly aware of the, the Sanskrit as well as Tamar sources. Um, there are some verses in Namarwar that are very clearly, there is a very famous verse in, in the Tiruviritam where he's very aware of the, of the Sangam typology, like the, of the five landscapes. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's a, a famous verse in the Natyar Tirumari where it's a clear allusion to a uh, 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 verse. So, uh, so they were clearly aware of, of their, their literary past. They were playing with it and they are aware of, uh, of uh, ritual. They're aware, they're theologically very, very, very complex. Um, and, uh, and, you know, so there's, so there's no question they were very erudite, they were very learned. Uh, whether they were writing, whether they read, it's hard to know, uh, you know, because uh, or orality has always been such a, that's why all of these stories tell us not about writing, but of reciting and hearing. Right. So, which is why, I mean, jumping into some someone like Andal, right, in particular, the the level of irradiation she has is pretty, pretty, pretty deep and wide, to be honest. Like, if it, it, like the way she talks about Sanskrit literature, in many ways, her allusions are to esoteric concepts within the within the Mahabharata, within the you know you know Vishnu Purana. Like just I, when yeah. I read it, I'm like, oh, she's referring to this, and this only yeah. occurs in this particular yeah. in, uh, you know how I mean, how, what does that tell about the way she was educated, and what I mean, do you know the historical basis? Were women educated at that time? Were they not? Do we have any sense of of how unique or not unique she was in that world because she's supposed to be a young child right 16 yes. to 20 or something yes i mean so we don't know we don't know really anything about her historically we don't know anything about koday we just can ascertain that she was a very 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 well educated woman um that she was uh i mean i don't know there's i mean you know there's this idea that she was a young girl young woman for me maybe that's, that's wrong yeah yeah, you know, that's a hagiography, right? That's the legend that's come down to us. I think part of it is because uh, it's a way to kind of, I think, mute the, the erotic elements mm -hmm. of the Nachar Thirumari. Wow. Somehow makes it more palatable if she's just a very young virginal girl. Mm. Uh, but for me, I personally, um, I find it very difficult to imagine this as being produced by a, a young person. 
um, uh, you know, I think this must, this is a person of some experience, you know, uh, of, of, uh, of some experience of, of, you know, ritual, of, of, you know, training in terms of theology, in terms of Tamil poetry. So I don't know that she was maybe not her 40s or 50s, but I think she may have been in her 20s, you know, I, I, she, see, see, her voice is very mature to me. Yeah. And the fact that she is able to switch registers, right? So there are verses like that she makes room in her poetry for that younger voice, like in the mm. Tripada, which is these Gopi girls uh, who are speaking in this very young and very youthful, very earnest voice. Or you see in the Nachar Turmuri and say the Kudi to Kudale or the Sitril Sedale mm. uh, sections, which is a very young, very like a young teenage voice. But compare that to something like Karpuram Narumo, which is, or Vimnila Mela Pavirital Porme Hankar, or Kandan Yenum Karandevam, any of those later verses, and or Tamu Hapum Tayam Tamkail, you know, those, that is a very different voice. That is a voice of, uh, of maturity, of depth, uh, that has a, 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 a completely different register than yeah. these voices of, uh, you know, that you see of the young girls uh, that, that you hear in the Tripave and you hear in some sections of the Nachia Thirumari. So that in itself for me is a clue that the fact that she's able to manipulate those voices suggests and, and adopt these different personae suggests to me that she is somebody who is aware of the possibilities and, um, and is probably somebody who's older, you know, who has that experience, who's, who's who is uh, capable of that kind of depth and richness of, of feeling, um, you know, the, I mean, the, the ways in which she talks about sexual desire, for instance, it's hard to imagine a 12 or 13 year old girl talking about it, yeah. even accounting for the fact that in the period that she was talking of, you know, lived 12 and 13, uh, would have been a marriageable age, right? Soon yeah. after puberty. Even given that, the, the way she talks about sexual desire, longing, is of a much more, it's not the sort of that first flush of, you know, it's a mature desire. It's a desire that has really sort of blossomed and, and is sort of rich and sort of has a kind of depth to it that is not just like hormones raging when you're 12 and 13, right? Yeah. So, it, you know, I mean, just on a side note, one of the things I, you know, probably someone else has noticed this is I find so much of the way that Andal talks about desire for Krishna connected to how like Jayadeva talks about when he writes in the, in the Gita Govinda, it's, a, yeah. it's, it, it, there is the, uh, even the physical description of, of, of breasts or, or hips or things of that nature where she feels that the longing for Krishna it's it's so emulated by Jayadeva and and, and I it's it, I this is it, it's weird because how we as a society now or even within the Tamil we we kind of that sexuality is kind of put away and seen like where as if like it's just metaphor when not like the way you're feeling as a as a woman or as putting yourself in that situation it's it's almost taboo to talk about it. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I find that to be kind of very terrible to lose that, that emotive element that the, you know, that Andal had, had really felt 
and her being and, yeah. and, and why are we just making it simply to be uh, a supernatural thing as opposed to this is aching this this it's important we all feel it yeah yeah and it's a and it's, it's a so really uh, I think that's one of the things that's quite distinctive about her as say opposed to say Namalvar or Tirumangai or even Kunashekar Alvar who use the female voice they have to rely on a kind of formula right yeah. because they're men writing as women there's a kind of directness to the way she talks mm. about her body, the way she talks about um, that experience, which, and, and her experience is like so somatic and so corporeal, like it's really like of the body and in the body. Uh-huh. That is, um, that's quite, I think, uh, that's quite unusual, uh, at least within the art bar corpus. Yeah. Um, and you know you see this very often with not that Namarwar and Tirumangai do not speak directly in the female voice they do there are a number of verses where but very often you'll have other people reporting on their on how they are doing yeah. like you'll have a mother or you'll have a friend or somebody speaking about the way in which the woman is right uh, rather than a, a direct uh, it's not that you don't have those you definitely have those direct uh, like in the Turukurungri pastram for in, um, verses, but there is some, you know, really uh, remarkable, uh, something quite distinctive about Koday. That's why I think she speaks to so many women today. Right. Um, you know, spe- especially people who are uh, dancers, and you know mm. the, that there's a kind of way that she allows uh, you to use her voice to kind of speak of your own desires in a way that. That is, I, th- I think that a lot of women find very empowering. Professor Vegetation, can you talk a little bit more about that that concept of like, what is it like to be a, a female bhakta versus a male bhakta? I'm really fascinated by this concept of these male alwars adopting the female voice, whether superficially or like, but not fully as somatic, like you said, with uh, with Anda. Um, but in, is there an example of a female alwar who adopts a male voice to express bhakti in a different way? I'm just, this no, is, this, I mean, there's a, the <laughs> have a very uh, interesting thing to say, right, about this. They say um, uh, in the, the Andal, uh, in the Guru Parampraprabhavam, one of the early hagiographies of, of, uh, of the Arvars and the Acharyas, um, in the Andal story, they say that Andal's desire for Vishnu is easy because she's a woman and it, fly, it flows down like water from the top of a hill down. Hmm. Whereas the male Arvars, it is you know, an upward trajectory because they have to make the switch. Wow. Um, but the, uh, there's another a text called the Achari Hridayam, uh, which is a text about, uh, about the Tirvanari in which this, the, the, the Aragya Manavala Pirmar Nayanar, the author of the text says that in these very, very short sutras, where he says that Namarvar speaks in, when he speaks in union, he speaks in his own voice. But when he speaks in separation, it's always in the female voice, mm. right? So there is this kind of idea that when there is union, um and when it is love you know that that love the animating principle of love is separation right wow. that you can't you can't have love if, if you don't have separation you have to have that and what get that and the female voice is best suited to this now i think that obviously from a, as a male i'm offended i'm the man i'm offended as a male just kidding but also i think you know from a feminist perspective that's a sort of 
It's the glorification of the fact like you guys can love more than we do. Well, we love too, okay. <laughs> but, but the more problematic being that the woman is always the one who is left behind. You know, that mm. idea that you know, as a woman, yeah. you have to, there's a kind of passivity, right? The mm. God is male and, you know, goes away and you have to sort of wait in this place. Uh, it's deeply problematic, right? So there I is know. a kind of assumption of heteronormative sexuality and desire yeah. and all of these things that for us in the 21st century, reading back retrospectively, I mean, th that are problematic. But within oh, the yeah. framework of the, of, the, of the text and within, you know, this is where we have to be careful, right? What is the tradition itself doing? What, are the, what is a poet doing? Right. What does the tradition then do with the poet? And then what do we as 21st century readers who have inherited all of this stuff, um, you know, that has allowed us to become attentive to inequalities and oppressions and, uh, and uh, you know, the, the sort of lack of voice of so many uh, uh, communities. Oh, yeah. What is that? And how do we then sort of navigate that? And I think that's, that is a, that is very hard to do, right? Because you have to take the texts on their own terms because they are composed at a particular moment in history and they are composed in a particular social context from by people in particular social locations, which are then, as I said, institutionalized in very specific ways. But that doesn't mean we cannot raise these, these questions about them and grapple sure. with them. The hard thing to do is when you sort of like say, oh, Ivarla, Arva, these are the Arvars and we cannot mm. question them. Yeah. You know, we cannot, about another, you know, touch it, right? So there's this, there was this, uh, a few years ago, uh, there, was a, there was a writer who wrote a, a, a short story um, about Andal uh, in, this, in this series, a Tamil writer uh, called Nonbur, and in which he sort of imagines um, Andal as a Devadasi and, um, and, uh, and it's, sort of, it's a sort of a Marxist reading of the Andal story. Sure. And of course, this was assigned to a, 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 a syllabus in some college and somebody found out and it was, there was a big hue and cry because like, how <laughs> can you say this about Andal? Mm. She's a goddess. Now, that's the problem, as I said, you know, when we begin, began the conversation, mm. that when you preserve these texts and they become institutionalized, then they also close off the interpretive possibilities. Like now, mm. Kode, you don't now, nobody refers to her. She doesn't call herself Andal in the poems. Kode, yeah. She's yeah. Kode. So She's there is Kode, like yeah. the identity of the poet Kode yeah. and the goddess Andal have become so fused yeah. that, and in fact, to the degree that Kode has ceased to exist and you only see Andal. Yeah, you know, that's about, a disservice to the poet, yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> so you could be as I think modern, contemporary. If you're really truly interested in this tradition, right? I think there's a way to hold both together. You can respect this who she is to communities and devotees everywhere. I mean, I've spent years at the Shivaliputaranda Temple. Yeah, um, and it's a it's a wonderful temple with such beautiful rituals and beautiful anubhavas of, of Andar. But you can hold that on one hand and you can also hold at the same time or try to recover or at least encounter the poet Kode on her own terms. Uh -huh. Right? Uh, yeah. But if you can only encounter her through this lens of the goddess Andar with this hagiography, 
then you cannot hear who she is and you have then closed her off. And it's a terrible disservice to this poet because it means that you have limited the range of possibilities. You have limited how, can, how she speaks to you. Let me say one thing, sorry to interrupt. You're going to laugh at this Professor Venkatesan. I, I was at my uh, Faryapa's house the other day and he had this book. It said Godanjali. I was like, what is this book? I've never heard yes. of Godanjali. So I pick up the Godanjali and I realized this Pirupale. And I didn't even know it was called Godanjali. I didn't even know her name was Kode. I only just thought of her as Andal the whole time. So this is just to, to, to reiterate your point. We forgot Kode. And we only, most of us only remember Andal, but it's important to remember Kode's voice, Koda's voice. Sabash, Kabate, very good. I, yeah. I didn't even know Godanjali was Tirupare. <laughs> so stupid I am. I have that book, that yeah. red book. This the is a red, red book, the red book, yeah, with yeah. Pe with a peacock feather? Yes, written by, I think, Subhadra, someone. Yes, I have that, I have that book. <laughs> it's so good, it's so good. I, I I was going through the first five possibilities today and the one story about Nanda and how, um, when he was a tiny ants that came in his way when he was carrying Krishna back, he would stab them with a spear. Yes. And, and the question is like, why does he need a spear to stab ants? And it's just, it's just beautiful. Like he's just going to be furious to protect his son. Yes. So beautiful. Yes. See, love of a father. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, it, it, a point that, you know, I always, it's interesting. It's that you bring up like these, these, you know, you put yourself into positions of whether lover, friend or father or mother, but for a large part, like you're indicating, it seems much more like any sort of bhakti connection is overly women-centric. So overly, you're going to be either a mother, like viewing Yashoda or Devaki or, or um, you know, Kosalya. And then once in a while, you get uh, Dashratha, you know, you get Dashratha thrown in. But, or, but it's always like gopis or it's just always this connection. And, and one of the things I think about is when it comes to Shaktas, right? Like how they don't have the same, you can't, you know, how is that connection done, right? Like, yeah. and do we have any... In the in in any of the works of the Alvars, anything towards Sri, or is it all only towards uh, Vishnu? I mean, there is Indrapavi, right? That with the eighteen in verse eighteen and nineteen Undumada Kalitran, which was supposed to be Ramanuja's most favorite verse, and then Kuttavala Kiriya Kotakal Katilmail, that very famous verse where it centers on Napinne, right? Yeah. The, the, the interpreters say that uh, Krishna is like, don't address me first. You have to first address. Shri, that is Napinai. Yeah. And of course, in the same thing happens with, with, I mean, this is where the theology develops. You see not verses specifically to Shri, but in the in the in the corpus, but Shri is very important, right? So you will see in the uh Tirvaimari at very critical moments, like in the uh sixth uh decade, the uh, sixth final decade, this uh, uh on uh which is supposed to be the very famous uh Prapati decade. Um, on Tirupadi and Tirmala, where the the the, the feet of uh, uh, Vishnu are mentioned in every single verse of mm -hmm. that decade, and the critical verse where the actual prapati happens, she is mentioned. Right, so this is seen as the as a and the same thing happens in the final decade of the Tiruvaimuri, where where uh, he he mentions that she is present there. So there's this there is definitely, and this is why it's the Sri Vaishnava tradition. Sri's critical role there. So they're not there's nothing specific to Sri, um, you know, like verses that comes later uh, in the later tradition, but not really in in the in the in the Arvars. Um, but again, you know, I want to sort of in, in like even like when you see Tirumangi Arvar or 
or even Namalwar, there are so many verses where they are speaking in their own, or what we think of as their own voice. Sure. Uh, and it's this voice of longing, right? So it's this, this form idea that only the voice of longing is the voice of uh, a woman is a later formulation. But when you read the text on their own, you see there's so many verses in which they are longing for, for the God and they're speaking in their own, or there is no persona there or mm. no female persona. They're speaking in their own voice. And so I think, you know, that also raises the question as to this idea that, uh, you know, you read Arvar poetry autobiographically, right? Yeah. So what is happening in the poem really happened to the Arvar. Now that is obviously one of the re reasons we read it that way is because what, of what Bhakti does, the, the literary genre does, where it breaks down this barrier, this forest barrier, the barrier, the frame, as I said, becomes really unstable at the very beginning of our interview, right? Yeah, yeah. I said that the frame becomes unstable and you as the speaker, uh, the, the, as the audience can enter into the poem and the relationship between the speaker of the poem and the poet also becomes very porous. So the speaker of the poem is equated to the to the poet, which is something that didn't used to happen in the earlier poetry, except- And then in some you step poetry. into the place of the poet. So it's like this merging of everything into one. Exactly, like parallel mirrors. But at the same time, so that, that's Bhakti poetry allows you to do that. So this is why we read them as autobiographical. Mm. So whatever happens in the uh, Natya Tirumuri, happened to Anda, like it's a historical fact, right? That's yeah. why we read it because the poetry forces us to do that. But we also have to remember, the poet is also creating a persona within the, within the poem. And we know this because of the Palashruti verses that always conclude them, the 11th verse, where the poet will speak of themselves in the third person, right? And they will say, this person spoke about what? So there is the, poet is therefore clearly aware of themselves as both the speaker and the poet. There's a kind of poetic persona at play mm. in that functioning in that Palashruti verse where they're saying the mm. matrix. Where, yeah. exactly, for the Palashruti verse where there's this kind of tension where the Palashruti will say, oh, they spoke about being really separated from Krishna, but recite this verse and then you will have like lots of noble children. <laughs> or you recite, they, they sang in this way that very, they're separated from Krishna, but you recite this and you will definitely reach Vaikuntha. So there's a kind of uh, Maran sang this verses, right? So there's this kind of tension there that exists in the Palashruti, which are spoken in the third person. This is where we get all the historical information, mm. right? The name of the poet, wh what town they came from, whether they were related to some king or not. All of the historical information comes from these Palashruti. So they're very, very key verses to us, but they also have a very unusual relationship to the verses that preceded because they they are both sort of the period, the full stop at the end of the verse, but they're also outside of them. They're kind of these meta poems. Mm. And they kind of indicate to us that the poet has a po poetic persona, right? So, which makes us have to be as readers very careful, parse what is the speaker's voice, what is the persona, what is the poetic voice, and understand that the poet is playing with us. Aha, but Professor Venkatesh, uh, I, I want to zoom out a little bit and I was thinking to myself, you know, so much of your work is, you know, painstakingly going through ancient script, uh, ancient poet poetry, and you know, and often guessing the poet's intention. But do you think that there are any uh, contemporary alvars who are alive today, or saints, saint-like figures, or poets? And if so, 
um, who, who do you think these people might be? And wouldn't it be easier to study people alive because then you just talk to them? <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> At least for me, uh, I think the, 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 that's the excitement to try to figure it out on your own. What's the point of meeting somebody and telling, asking them, then, yeah, this is what it is. The meaning is this is what it is. I mean, it, again, it closes off the possibility. Aha, right? Aha. It closes off the possibilities of interpretation. For me, uh, poetry is so powerful because it's infinitely meaningful, mm. infinitely aha. meaning making. Yeah, you right? can read into it the meaning you want, right? No, I don't say that it's no. Sorry, I misspoke. You cannot read into it whatever you want because mm. there are rules. Uh-huh. You can't read uh, Andal and say it's about the NBA finals. Uh, <laughs> See, right? she was a Lakers fan. She's a Lakers yeah, fan. Right? You can't, there are certain rules about. Uh, he says about, she likes the dark one. That's LeBron. <laughs> exactly. Right? So, so, yeah, yeah. so there are, there are there are certain you know limitations so it's not this idea like any interpretation goes yeah. and you as a reader like but poetry is is like it's like a really intense sort of like a very dense very impacted sort of bomb if you will right a linguistic bomb and uh, like a bomb of fragrance uh-huh. and you are you you but and it, but it's it, it's it's endlessly renewable right it's not like you just burst this like bath bomb and it's over it's like you burst it and then it comes back together and then you burst it again and each time you do it it gives you a different sort of experience it gives you a different sort of entry and and one of the wonderful things about these poems is that it allows you to enter them from different places uh-huh. right so you can read the natyartharamuri from natyartharamuri 1 to 14 and you'll get one set of meanings but say you decide you want to read natyartharamuri by only reading the verses that are messenger poems gives you a different kind of meaning Okay, I want to get rid of all of the messenger poems. I want to read only the Gopi verses. It gives you a completely different meaning. What if you just, I want to rearrange the poem completely. I want to put Varanamayaram at the end. And I want to bring, uh, I want to group all the messenger poems together. You know, it gives you a different possibility, right? So there's a kind of, there's a kind of power to you. The, the poet is like, the greatest gift giver there is because uh-huh. they give you this gift and you it's like a puzzle and you as the reader get to put this puzzle together over and over again and except every time you put it together the possibilities of how that puzzle are going to work and come together are literally infinite that's exactly how i feel about ragas it is like that. I mean, that is, that is uh, I think, a very key aspect of how you read uh, Indian poetry, uh-huh. is that it's, it's what the great writer A.K. Ramanujan called radial reading. You don't read in a linear way, but you read in this very elusive way that is kind of like, a, you know, it's one X goes to Y goes to Z. It's sort of like a skipping stone, right? So, uh, and it's endless and it's sort of looping and it's circular. And... Um, like in the Trivaimuri, you can sort of read only the verses on the on the various various shetras, 
you get one kind of poem. Read only the 270 verses that are in the female voice, you get a different kind of poem. You decide, you know what, I only want to read those verses. I want to just trace, as uh, Frank Clooney has done, um, the word nedii, uh, the tall one, the towering one. This is very vague, very abstract word. What does nedii or nedumal mean, really? Uh, the towering God. Um, I just want to use it, just trace it, all the ways it occurs in the Tribunary. The possibilities are endless. So, you know, so it's a kind of, uh, so I, I would say that for us as readers, as us as challenge, the challenge for us as readers is both to be respectful of the tradition that has nurtured these poems and that they've survived because of all of the acharyas and, uh, and commentators who have written commentaries and sought to preserve this tradition in all of these different ways but to be bound by them and to say that they have the last word. In fact, that is why Ramanuja himself never wrote a, uh, a commentary. commentary on the Trivainuri because oh, he wow. said that if I wrote a commentary, that will be the last word. <laughs> Nobody will write a commentary on the Trivainuri after me. So he himself, the great Ramanuja himself recognized the importance of leaving a text mm. like the Trivainuri or the Tirupave or the Periyaturmuri or any of these great works open so mm. that each of us um, uh -huh. can enter them and re-enter them, make them our own. And, and you know, one of the things I always say is poetry makes worlds. Wow. Yeah. Beautiful. Right? You make it, a, it the, he's given us the gift of having a personal experience without any dogma behind it. You know, you experience it for yourself. It's beautiful. Professor. Right. So poetry beautiful. is a way of, is a world making exercise, right? You read poetry and it makes a kind of world. Mm -hmm. And but it also unmakes the world, right? You finish the poem, it's over, but then you get to rebuild the world. And every time, so it's up to us to think about the kinds of worlds we want to create through this kind of generative, regenerative process, because the capaciousness of the poems gives us that opportunity, right? So that to me, for me, has always been very important sort of as a reader of, of, of the Arvars, um, trying to understand and walking that very uh, narrow line and that kind of tightrope, if you will, between respect and um, respect and sort of regard for the great Sampradaya uh, that has nurtured the, 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 the Viprabandham, but also for me reading them as poems, as yeah. just like great poetry and what does it i mean there were days that i would just read a single verse of the trivamri and i would just be crying because i was like I, it's it's so beautiful right it's just uh it's so i would just be like uh, astounded by just the capacity of, of a poet to put so much pack so much into so few words like that verse that I just said, the Vidamin Mutravam, Vidasayadum, it's only a couplet. I just sat there like, Yepudi, how do you, how? Uh -huh. You know, how do you do it in just two lines with a repetition of a single word over and over again? And how do you capture that, that emotion of, of letting go of everything except the guy who, you know, it's just, I mean, that's, it's beautiful. It's beyond beautiful, right? Even yeah. thinking about it makes me a little emotional. It's just, yeah. it just, 
Wow. Right? Uh -huh, man, man. Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I mean, to change, not change track, but just, did you think that these all of ours understood where they stood in 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 this in this lineage and somehow or were they i mean it's, it's such a weird question right because it was such a short term timeline from sixth century to ramana's time 11th century right you know when they're already codified into this into basically ubaya vedanta right they, these are these are suddenly these people within 300 time uh, 300 years become considered equal to the vedas but there must have been some of that happening during that timeline where they were already there, right? And did they understand that at all? I mean, I, 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 don't, I, don't... I don't know. I, I, that's a question I think it's hard to say, right? Yeah. Uh, because what, we don't have that much external to them, right? We don't have like a whole lot of, we don't know anything. Like we don't have inscriptions, you know, we don't really? have... Yeah, we don't have, not from that period that tells us about Tirumangir Alvar, except for this one thing about, you know, the, uh, the Parameshwara Vinagar. Yeah. We don't really have, like, people telling us about, you know, other people telling us about the Alvars, right? Except Madhurakavi's Karnin Chiratamba, which is about Namalvar. But even in that, he doesn't tell us anything about Namalvar. Instead, he tells us about his relationship to, to Namalvar. So you don't have, within that six through nine, and of course you have, uh, Kode talking about Vishnu Chittan, yeah. right? Um, so you have those kinds of references, but those are, again, what does she tell us? So she just tells us he's the Bhattar Piran of uh, Puduvai. What does that, I mean, and of course that is stands in contrast to the, um, to what the hagiographies tell us that he was a very humble garland maker. Yeah. But in the poetry is like, he's the king of Puduvai. <laughs> You know, he's the Piran, he's the, you know, he's the, he's the king, cone, butter, he's a butter cone, he's like the king of all the butter, you know, it's like, so there's a kind of, um, so we don't really have external information. Were there, were they aware of each other? I think they must have been, um, but, you know, again, it, this was all very hypothetical. Um, but how, but how did this get compiled into a single, like, corpus right it could have it could have totally been like andal would have never been uh kode would have never been included Vishwachita would have been never included. it would only have been namavar but yeah. how did how did this become one poetic work we don't know and uh i mean that again we don't really have a, a kind of uh clear sense of how that happens right uh whether it is um we only have these uh, these kind of hagiography, these narratives, we have sort of early records of the recitation of the Trivaimari. So we know that the Trivaimari, what we do know is that from a very early period, from the very formative period of the Sri Vaishnava tr tradition, yeah, the Tripave and the uh, Trivaimari are both very important because they we see them attested to in inscriptions that the recitation of those texts is very early. Mm. But uh, we don't know much about everything. We don't know anything else. Like, how do these get, texts get, get incorporated? How did the Natyar Tirumuri get included? Because it's, you know, as I said, a quite a radical work. Um, what was the process of compilation? We only have this kind of, is it an anthology? Is it a compilation? Why are some of the verses incomplete? Uh, the Trivasariam, even of, of, of Namalvar himself, Trivasariam in um, 
Bedia Trivandadi are almost certainly incomplete works. So, uh, so there's a lot we don't know. And so, yeah, so there needs to be more research done on actually the, the whole sort of the coming together of the Divya Prabandham itself. Um, and, you know, that's one of the things I always sort of lament is that there are lots of people working on the Sri Vaishnava Sampra tradition, but most of them work on the Sanskrit side. Yeah, that's right. And, and the yeah. philosophical side. Uh, and uh, As and opposed think, to poetry, you mean? As opposed to the poetic side? Uh, as side. opposed to the Tamar side. Yeah, okay, of, okay. On the Arbar side. There's very little being done really on the Arbars. And so I think that's, I, I will hope that people will, I mean, that's one of the reasons I, I want to translate these works as a way to, because big barriers that a lot of the Viprabandham hasn't been translated yeah. in an accessible manner. I know that there's several translations available on the internet, but in, but they're not accessible. They're not readable. Uh, they don't quite convey the, the poetry, the power of the, of the text. So I think one of the, I think that's one of the big hurdles, unlike the say the Shaiva canon, which has a very long history, right? For a very long yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the ones I, I, I used before was this one. Uh, I'm sure you've had that. You've seen yeah, this one. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. With, uh, you know, Govinda Char, he's got the, yeah. he's got the Holy Lives with all of ours and the, their, their message and basically, yeah. but it's, it, again, it's, it's very, it's very uh, difficult to, to read in, in, a, in a certain way as poetry. It doesn't come off as poetry. Yeah. Um, so, but I mean, but in this regard, you know, like I have some people have asked me questions to ask you. Um, uh, Krishna, do you have any questions you want to go through first? No, I'll let you go first. Okay. You're probably going to cover the same ones. I already got, I got it out. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, the question that some people ask is, um, so in Andal Sthirupami, the first, the first postum kind of covers both the time, I mean, the month and the place. But doesn't cover like the year. Is there any significance of that, or is that just uh, mm. in the, is that not something that people thought about? The year meaning like when the year like seven hundred and forty two that she completed. No, no, no not, not exactly that. But like in it, like when she talks about the month and whatever, it, it maybe like it, she like in this is like a in reference the, to a king or or like you why know, doesn't she say? Uh, I think okay. So here's I think where I think the it's a good question. Um, and I think this is where, you know, we read the Tirupave as though it were a, a, a vow that the Pave Numbu that Kodai herself observed. But it's oh. very clear that that is not the case because in the Palashruti, the 30th Vanga Kadal, she says very clearly, this is a song about the Gopis. Gopi girls yeah. observing a, a vow. So what I think is happening here is that she is describing a generic vow that takes place that is adapted from the Sangam corpus that was a Margari vow taken to the goddess Katyayani. That was, so she's taking that and adapting it to this, to the Krishna, so Ayar party. So it is not meant to be specific, right? Because it's meant to be replicated Margari after Margari after Margari. So it's not like a specific in the Varshatla Matunam Parnada, right? Mm -hmm. so, saying, so it begins by saying Margari Tingal but she also begins, um, by saying right in yeah. the full moons of Thai. So I don't so I I think the the purpose, the success of the Tirpave is because it uses that uh, first person plural so effectively so that you are invited into the vow. So you become a person undertaking this vow. And it's also this 
of course, Maniki Vachakar himself writes uh, the Tirvain Baba as well. So it's a kind of genre of vow poetry, hmm. which ends with this refrain, Yeah. And so it's meant to be a vow that you observe, that anybody can observe. So I don't, that's why I think it's uh, not specific to, uh, there's no specific historical information as to a king or a specific year or whatever. Sure. Um, another question people were asking me is, what influence does Koda or Andal have on other female saints in, in, in the preceding generations or time period? Oh, I don't know. We don't know. Again, we don't know what how much the poetry traveled. Like we mm -hmm. know that the Arvar poetry more broadly kind of traveled. Whether we don't know whether Tripave, I mean, we know Tripave, you know, Manikavachaka composes the Tirvembave. Okay. So um, probably in response to the Tripave. But we don't know, like we don't know there's a one-to-one -one correspondence like Gita Govinda, for instance, was uh, was influenced by uh, somehow the Tirpave and Nachar Tirmari yeah. getting to Orissa, Odisha or not. So it's very difficult to say precisely how Kodayandal herself as a poet influenced. So uh, I guess that follows up. Next question is uh, how, uh, uh, someone asked, how early was the Tirupave introduced to non-Tamil regions in South India. Do we know that? Uh, Tripavi non-Tamil regions, probably I would guess quite late. Yeah. Guess. There are like, there is in Banaras a Karthik vow that's take that's similar, uh, but uh, it's not, it I mean, again, like you see it being, once the Adhyayanotsavan is, mm. once it's being incorporated, then you see that from very early period, it's being recited like in, Tirumala and so and other temples um, in Telugu speaking areas now but whether you're talking about it going up like to Vrindavan or something like mm. that there's no we don't have any so far there's nobody who is we have not found anything like a, 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 a Hindi translation of the Tirupave <laughs> from like sure. the 14th century or something like that. But, but we do find during the Vijayanagar Empire there was a wasn't there a um, uh, I had a biography done by uh, yes. So uh, there's a story that so so there's two different things, right? So yeah. if you're asking about Andal's sort of, she begins to boom like after the 12th century. There's a uh -huh. kind of Andal boom where the temples and her shrines start to show up and all of that. That's very clear. Yeah. And it booms even more in the Vijayanagara period where you have um, uh, Krishna Devaraya composed this very important text in Telugu called Amukthamanyata. Yeah. But if you're talking about the texts themselves, the Tirupavi and the Nachar Turumuri, that we, as, as texts sort of traveling, we, it's difficult to say. Uh, we don't really have translations and um, you know, we don't really have at least not that I know of, and if somebody knows, I'd be happy to uh, right. learn of them. But there's a very interesting um, inscription at the Shiveli Puttur Andal Temple, huh. which incorporates lines from the, it's a 15th century inscription, which incorporates lines from the Nachiar Turumuri and is written as a love letter to Ranganatha mm. using the lines from the Nachiar Turumuri. So that's a very unusual, a very interesting kind of inscription. That, that is fascinating. Um, uh, on the main vimana of the of the Sri Viliputuran uh -huh. um, So there's so those kinds of things, but there's a kind of 
Andal boom that takes place in terms of like hagiographies, in terms of Tanians being composed to her, in terms of uh, starting in the 12th century and by the 15th century, it's just like all over the place. You know, you see the temple itself come up, the, the Srivilikutu temple come up. And then there's a kind of, then there's the Helm of the Malida is composed like prior to that, then you have like the Divya Surucharitam, which is another hagiography that's composed. And then it just kind of snowballs. snowballs. <laughs> um, is there any reason why the Tirupave is probably more well-known than, than her Nachara Tirumuri? Uh, probably because it's it's a communal work. It's not a, about, a, it's not a, it's not like the Nachara Tirumuri is about, it's a single voice. It's yeah. you know, mostly a single voice. I think it's also that it, it's it's also a, a kind of communal vow, so it's something that you could observe, right? Uh -huh. Observe a vow, but I also think that the Nanashatramuri is 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 a is a very erotic text. It's a very um, sexy poem. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a, and it's a tough work, um, and it also really pushes some boundaries, as I said. You know, like. Uh, like in the 13th section of the Nachiya where she sort of talks about, you know, her desire growing so great that she wants to rip out her breasts, clearly invoking the, the Silipadigaram. Silipadigaram, yeah. Um, so that kind of, you know, the, you don't see that kind of emotional sort of fever pitch uh, mm. in, in any of the other poets. So I think maybe that's one of the reasons that the poem is there, but not there, right? And, but what's interesting I, I sort of want to slightly push back on this idea of the popularity of, of the Nachar Tirumuri and the Tripave. Yes, the Tripave is certainly more well known, but throughout the tra tradition, the Nachar Tirumuri is not sort of sidelined. Hmm. It's constantly used, like it's it, even more than the Tripave, it's in the Nachar Tirumuri's that is what um, textures the stories of, of Andar. They quote very frequently from the Nachar Tirumuri in in creating the hagiography. They quote, quote lines from the Nachyatamuri. Festivals that are taken, that take place in the, in the, in the Srivali Putarandao temple must rely much more on the Nachyatamuri than the Tripavi. Mm. So there are ways in which the Nachyatamuri has a perhaps kind of not necessarily visible, but very persistent life. Right. Um, and it's not something that has been sidelined by the tradition. It's not like, oh, we, we want to suppress the Nachyatamuri. It's just that it's been, it's less well known um, in the popular imagination, uh, but it's definitely not a less regarded text uh, within the Sri Vaishnava uh, tradition, even though the, Nacha, the Tripave is definitely, it's the second most commented, commented text uh, in the Sri Vaishnava tradition after the Tripavai. Interesting. Um... I guess my other question then would be like, I mean, taking, I know we're coming almost on two hours now. Yeah. Um, so I want to start wrapping this up, but you know, where, where does, where does this literature sit right now in Tamil Nadu, right? In the place where it was born, does it have uh, widespread knowledge? Is it just, is it, is it, is it being promulgated? Is it being, is the government doing anything to have, people learn this kind of stuff or is it just kind of just sitting there sitting in in the Sri Vaishnava tradition and that traditional thing in the Sri Vaishnava tradition I think it's part of like some you know like Tamil classes you'll read the Tirupave and you yeah. read the Vaimuri and so forth and but no it's very much religious literature mm. you know, it's it, very much religious literature and again it's the, you will see them primarily taught in sort of Vaishnavism departments 
mm. um, and always taught along with the commentaries. Um, so yeah, it's not like a, it's not really, uh, it's yeah, it's not, mm. it's, but I mean, people are still, you know, you have, I mean, Tripave is, I think, very unusual because it kind of has this life of its own during Margari Masam. Mm where it's blasted, everybody listens to it, it's blasting in the loudspeakers, um, people are singing it in the concerts. So it kind of has a very different, I think it's in a category of its own. Mm. But I think that um, the other texts are definitely are, are, are very much live within the, within the realm of the Sri Vaishnava tradition. Mm. Um, they're very much rooted in it, which is, of course, very different from the Shaiva tradition, uh, where you have, you know, the 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 Trivasakam and so forth are are very much outside. Um, uh, so it, it, you know, it's. Um, but that is part. I mean, that's what happens when you institutionalize, and it became such a closely guarded uh, uh, textual tradition. Um, you know, it's very closely guarded. Very few people had access to it. Outsiders. Um, and so that's that's what happens, you know. Mm. Professor Venkatachan, can I ask one last question? I know we're almost up to time, but I have two daughters. That, uh, one is five years old. Her name is uh, Lalita, and one who's uh, younger, Meenakshi, who's two. And if they ask me about Anda, like, what are some lessons I can tell young children about Anda that that you think they would resonate? I know you speak to university students and grad students all the time, <laughs> professors. But if my, if my kids ask me, Papa, tell me about Anda, like, what are some some points you think I can give them? <laughs> Is that okay question, fair question? Uh, I think it's a great question. Um, I think it's a it's a wonderful question, actually. Um, she loves nature, I know that, right? She has a parrot just like Mina, actually, too, right? Which is very yeah, fascinating. Yeah, she, has a, she has a parrot. Um, I think I saw a video on YouTube where you were talking to another professor or someone, how there's a temple where Meenakshi and, and Andal are facing each other, in fact, right? I, yeah. I forget where that was. Madhuri, maybe? I don't know. They're not facing each other. No, oh, no, not no. facing each other. Yeah, no, no. They're but they're mirrors of each other. Oh. Um, and that's because of Tirumalai Nayakar, and that's a whole other rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, they both have the Margarita Tutsavam. Anyway, that's like a that's like a yeah. whole other conversation. Um, but what would I tell uh, a, a yeah, for, or uh, even young boys? Well, yeah, young, for children. Uh, for I mean, children. First, yeah? I think the the fact that she is a, a, a woman writing poetry, I think is, is remarkable, is, you know, so is something worth pointing out. I think that, uh, that the fact that she uses poetry to sort of express very deep private feeling, uh, that she's able to, but she does it in ways that are playful sometimes, but also quite sort of very close to the bone. Yeah. Um, she's somebody who's very observant, um, you know, of, of her natural world, very aware of her body uh, and her relationship to. She's a profound empathy. Um, you know, she has a profound empathy uh, for, uh, for, 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 I think, the world. Um, but she also feels, at least the voice in the poems, she also feels very alone. And mm -hmm. I think this is one of Separateness the- Separateness again, yeah. 
you know, one of the things I think that is very moving to me uh, reading Andal is that how I hear that, you know, as I remember being a young woman, um, feeling isolated, feeling like nobody understood me, nobody, I was suffering everything just by myself and there was nobody out there who could hear what I was saying. Nobody mm. could feel what I was feeling. But yet I felt what everybody else was feeling, right? There's this, and that's a very, I think, um, very human thing, but she has, she has a wonderfully honest way about describing that very uh -huh. fundamental uh -huh. human experience of isolation. Uh -huh. um, that is, but at the same time, building it towards a particular kind of, you know, very deep and profound empathy. And I think that's where her poetry comes, it's so resonant for so many of us, is because she's able to speak to our darkest fears and our, our most um, vivid yearnings, right? right. What uh -huh. we like really yearn for and cannot express she finds a way to express them. Um, so I would say to a young woman that, because often women are told not to express themselves, not to say what you feel, keep it inside. Or boys too, by the way. But you know, like, you know, the, the idea of modesty, yeah. you know, it's build, yeah, build it right. and speak. Don't be, too, don't be too emotional, right? Don't, don't get be too, too emotional. emotional. Don't be yeah. hysterical. Don't this be, is true. be modest, be mm. quiet. Mm. The fact that she throws that all out of the window, that she chooses honesty. She doesn't sugarcoat anything. She doesn't sugarcoat what suffering is like, or what the pangs of desire are like. Um, I think is 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 a very liberating thing. I think for a lot of women to read. That was a beautiful response. <laughs> that was amazing, <laughs> Professor. <laughs> what a way, man! I really appreciate. It. Thank you for being so articulate. You just hit upon the points, and I'm going to tell my daughter those things. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote them all down. I'm going to watch the video again and make sure I got it right. But uh, <laughs> I I look forward to getting more knowledge from you. And what are your next projects? What are you are you I, what are you doing next? Uh, what am I doing next? Uh, I'm working on uh, this translation. I'm sort of the series editor of this trans translation uh, for the Kambara Mainam, where oh. seven people translating uh, the six books of the Kamban. Uh, I'm doing Sundarakandam. I'm not quite there. I'm very early stages, but it's a, it's a been a challenge because you know doing narrative poetry is, is is and of course the ornateness of Kanban is is is, is, is I'm learning. Uh right now I'm sort of learning how to translate Kanban. Well, we'll definitely purchase the, whatever you pre-order this book that you're going to yes, do. Yes, well, it'll, it'll be like the rate I go looks like another 10 years. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, we, can, we can wait patiently like I'm under. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, but the, the other project that I'm working on, I'm hoping to think, bring it to fruition soon is this project I've been working on for, I think, since 2000 and well, it started when I did my Andal work in the Sriviliputu temple, but really started off in 2005 is a project on the Adhyayanotsavam, which is the festival of recitation of the, of the Nacha, uh, I mean, or of the Divya Prabandha. Mm. 
So I've been really interested in this festival um, and I'm, in, I'm working on uh, the Navatirupadi project. I'm working on it uh, in the Navatirupadis um, uh, and Nanganeri and in Tirukurungudi. So that's something that um, I'm hoping to bring to conclusion in the next few years. I still have to do, I was supposed to go, obviously, I go every Margari uh, yeah. for the film, but wasn't able to go this year. Sure. Um, because I can only do one temple <laughs> every year. So... I still have to do Alvar Pernagari. I've done some of it, but I have to still finish Alvar Pernagari. So um, I'm hoping that all things being safe uh, in 21 uh, Margari, I'll be able to go. Good luck. You're going to do You're going to do everything. Good luck. Good luck. And, and uh, this is, um, Krishna wants to do this final question, which what? is usually the question now, I, it's not usually, you're the first one we're going to ask is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I forget what, I didn't remember what you're talking about, um, but go ahead. This is, um, what have you learned now that you have not did not know before you started any of these projects? <laughs> uh, so much. I, I can't even there's there's so much. I can't even begin to mm. uh, I can't even begin to I don't even know where to start. Yeah. Um, so much uh, about like, as I said, the very first thing is like, I didn't even know Andal was like a actual historical person. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, um, the, you know, the, the, the life of the Nachar Tirumuri, because I had this received wis wisdom that Nachar Tirumuri is not really popular. It doesn't like, it's just this hidden thing. And then I go to Sri Viliputur and it's everywhere. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, so many things like uh, the, 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 the life of the Trivaimuri in Temple Festival, uh, how people like feel the Trivaimuri, um, you know, it's like uh, like the, Adya, the relationship of the Adhyanotsvam, like my whole understanding of the Adhyanotsvam, uh, my interest in the festival, um, you know, the, I'd just say that I'm, I mean, fundamentally changed as a scholar, as a person, you know, working with these texts, um, you know, uh, makes you reflect very deeply on, on who you are as a human being, um, reflects very deeply on the creative process. Uh, what is it I'm doing as a translator? Why am I translating? What's the purpose of translation? What do I want to achieve as a translator? Uh, it's, I mean, very small things, but very big things. You know, you learn little details. Oh, this was the first reference to this, the Shatari or some little like nugget of, of when the Trivaimari was first translated or some, these kinds of historical details that you you, you come up well, with. Well, outside the historical stuff, is there something that you found about yourself in terms of um, like your relationship to Hinduism or spirituality that, that has come from this you know or is it or, or is it has it been a very much like a um not just academic but a, a, like a emotional thing definitely emotional i can't i don't think you can work on these texts without it affecting you in some very right. profound way um yeah so it's as i said it's like uh, working on the trivamri changed me changed me completely yeah. utterly Mm. Um, you cannot not, you know, it's, it's a very great work. And I think this is true of any great work, you know, I, and I, I suspect it will be the same when I'm done with the Kamban, yeah. right? 
um, when you live with a text for a very long time, uh, and when you sort of get into the skin of it, you're sort of almost like uh, living inside of it, you're breathing inside of it. Right. Um, you inhabit it in some very way and it's inhabiting you. Uh, you are utterly changed by that. You know? yeah, and pro Professor Bangladesh, I'm also so inspired that you're not just sitting down in an armchair historian style reading books in the corner. You're actually going to these places and seeing the festivals and seeing the temples and appreciating the architecture. So your approach is also so hands-on and with the people, with the practice, yeah, it's, like, it's, it's not like, just an academic. So I really respect that a lot. Yeah, you're yeah. actually going and you're going to these places. You know, I wish that you have safe travels in 2021 so you can go see all the places. I hope wanna... so too. It was yeah, the you know? first Margari in I think 12 years, 14 years that I wasn't in India. So it was it'll happen crazy. again. It'll happen again. So, uh, well, but yeah, so it's, it's a very difficult question for me to answer, Mukunda. I'm next sorry podcast, next time, you, next interview. I can't give you a more sort of like uh no i mean there's no there's no right or wrong answer like you've done no, a great job are you no, kidding me no you know it's uh, it's just uh, all i can say <laughs> is that uh, it it is uh, it's a profoundly moving emotional and uh, transformative experience there's no question about it you know who i was at the start of doing the Thirvaimari is certainly not who i was at the end of it so well, that's fantastic um yeah. do you have any last uh, I mean, not last thoughts. I always have to say last thoughts, but I don't mean last thoughts, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But do you have any thoughts that you want to close off on that you think that we did not miss or that you think that is so important for people to know about this literature or... Or a um, link or a website for audience to check out or something. Uh, well, I have a website. You can. Yeah. I haven't updated it for a while, but if you want to, I've got some more translations like something Mangai and stuff. It's The, the website is uh, archana.org faculty.ucdavis.edu. We'll put that in the description. The link or yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll put it. that and I'll put the Amazon links uh, to, yeah. to your books. Yeah, so you can put, and it's got some stuff on the Adhyayan Otsavam and sure. some photos and stuff. But, I, you know, we've covered a lot of ground and the only thing I would just encourage people is to, even if you don't know Tamar, you know, just find, just read this work. Yeah. Just find a way. And those of you who are do, who, who are like me, you know, like didn't know Tamil, didn't know anything about Sangam literature, you know, start, you know, just start uh -huh. and you can learn it. It's not, it's not difficult. And, um, you know, you can, you can learn it. And I hope that there will be people, uh, there are lots and lots of engineers. I'm very glad for all the <laughs> scientists out there who found the vaccine. That's right. Uh, but the reason yeah. that we live and we have a vaccine and that is so that we can enjoy and relish this wondrous world in which we live. And for I that, you need humanists. Yeah. And you need poets and you need yeah. artists. So those of you out there listening, there's like for, there's like 20, uh, 20 computer science programmers for one poet. So you be that one poet. I love it. Love I it. love it. That's fantastic. Great way to, great way to, thank you, Dr. Gayati Vanamai